I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. Hey, everyone. This is Manny Faces, producer and host of the award-winning Newsbeat podcast, where we mash up hard-hitting journalism, interviews with experts and activists, and independent hip-hop music to tackle some of the most pressing social justice issues of our time. Welcome. And while the world's attention has justifiably shifted to all things coronavirus, it's important we don't lose sight of the many struggles, challenges, and threats that have existed long before COVID-19 that'll persist long after the insidious disease's seemingly never-ending wrath. We know the issues. Inequality, racism, mass incarceration. The list is as extensive as it is exhausting. And somewhere at the top has to be climate change. Similar to COVID-19, it endangers the very survival of our species. Yet there's no vaccine to stop its effects. Rather, we're forced to collectively strive to halt and actually reverse the mechanisms granting it life. The burning of fossil fuels, mass deforestation, and the denial and dismissal of alternatives by those in power. We also must fearlessly and ferociously combat its sinister truths that once again, the poor and communities of color are more and more disproportionately affected by its brutal effects rising sea levels, life-threatening temperatures, air pollution so noxious that simply breathing can be a battle. So many of their futures have been predetermined decades ago by racist housing policies called redlining, where neighborhoods were literally outlined in red on maps to demarcate those considered bad credit risks and excluded from lending for businesses, home mortgages, insurance purposes, the list goes on and on. The economic effects of these generational wealth-depriving policies is pretty well documented. What we're realizing now is just how much the environment is causing additional damage, as the folks who were relegated to live within the boundaries of these exclusion zones are baking hotter than other areas, their very neighborhoods trapping lethal doses of thermal heat and radiation, so much that they're currently deemed, quote, heat islands. The issue is eye-opening and horrifying. Yet, as you'll also hear from this episode, there are people thankfully working hard to remedy these issues. Breaking it all down for us is Bruce C. Mitchell, Senior Research Analyst at the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, Kate Mingoya, Director of Capacity Building at nonprofit Groundwork USA, and Vivek Shandis, Professor of Urban Studies and Planning at Oregon State University. Our incredible musical guest punctuating the urgency of this issue with incendiary verses is our artist in residence, hip-hop flamethrower, Silent Night. As always, if you like what you hear, I hope you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Please rate and review us and take a second to share this episode. For more on the issue and about us, visit usnewsbeat.com. Once again, I'm Manny Faces, and this is Redlining and Climate Change, a Deadly Combination. The term redlining is this practice from the past, sometimes occurring today, basically neighborhoods had red lines drawn around them because they were not considered good risks for credit. So banks, insurance companies, other financial institutions would be involved in basically excluding different communities from lending for business, lending for home mortgages, or insurance purposes. These communities were deprived of capital flow for many decades. And this was a process that probably first came up in a more formal sense back in the 1930s when a federal agency, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, engaged in constructing what were called residential security maps. 
And what the federal government did was it sent out examiners to about 200, 250 cities throughout the United States to formally look at neighborhoods within those cities and determine what their credit worthiness was. And they had this very defined grading scale. Uh, it was a very systematic process. Generally, the way that they decided to do this was by race and by housing quality. So areas that were white. And I want to acknowledge that definitions of whiteness have changed over time. If you look into the notes for uh, the HOLC's maps, they differentiate a lot between the right and wrong kind of white people, the right kind of French, the wrong kind of French. But generally, the areas that were outlined in green or green lined were white areas, so the right kind of white, British, German folks and higher quality housing stock. And the areas that were redlined were people of color, so black folks, uh, extremely, extremely low income folks. And those areas were outlined in red and, and were redlined. And in between, you had the government sort of struggling with how do we feel about Eastern European people and are Polish people really white? And it's something that I think is, is interesting is sort of how did people get into these areas to begin with to be surveyed? And there's a really long history of municipally led segregation, um, which I think you guys covered in one of your other episodes of, of Baltimore saying, hey, there's certain percentages of people of color and people and white people that are allowed to live on these blocks. I mean, often these low-income folks and these recent immigrants and these people of color were originally settled into low-lying areas or areas that were already hotter or wetter or close to industry. So there is a very, very, very long history of race-based segregation related to housing way before redlining even came into the picture. And that is that although it may be true, morality cannot be legislated, behavior can be regulated. Even though it may be true that the law cannot change the heart, it can restrain the heartless. Even though it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, it can restrain him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important also. And so while the law may not change the hearts of men, it can and it does change the habits of men. There is a need for fair housing laws all over our country. I can see no more dangerous trend in our country than the constant developing of predominantly Negro central cities ringed by white suburbs. This is only inviting social disaster. The only way this problem will be solved is by the nation taking a strong stand, by state governments taking a strong stand against housing segregation and against discrimination in all of these areas. These areas were deprived of capital, which meant it was very difficult to improve the housing structure within those areas, to start businesses within those areas, or to finance any kind of improvement. So it really put in place this structure of inequity in American cities. And what we found in our study was that most of these areas that were coded red back in the 1930s, 74% of them today are low to moderate income communities, and 64% of them are minority communities, largely African-American, but some uh, Hispanic also. Our next segment examines new research that is drawing attention for its findings about economic opportunity in America. Jeffrey Brown picks it up for me. Is it still possible to climb to the top in America? In a paper released this week, a group of economists found the prospects for upward mobility, the theme of the American dream, 
haven't changed in the last several decades. Intergenerational mobility in the U.S., social mobility, is lower than virtually any other developed country for which we currently have data. And so the way to think about this is that upward mobility is quite low, unfortunately, on average in the U.S., and it's been persistently low for the past few decades. And so the question that we ask is what is driving that difference in upward mobility within the U.S.? And we identify a set of factors, a set of correlated factors, uh, such as segregation, income inequality, the quality of schools in an area, family structure, and measures of social cohesiveness, all of which are related to uh, higher levels of upward mobility. And what that means is people don't have access to loans, they can't buy houses as readily through a home mortgage, which excludes them from wealth building opportunities, right? They're not able to store as much wealth in their properties, develop the equity in their homes, in their businesses that people in other neighborhoods that aren't redlined would be able to. So that's the most obvious kind of result of this is that it really increased the racial wealth gap within the United States. It's a structural problem, a historical problem. Now with this bill, the voice of justice speaks again. It proclaims that fair housing for all, all human beings who live in this country is now a part of the American way of life. It's been 10 years since the economic recession, and credit has slowly returned for most Americans. In 2016, the number of conventional mortgages had risen 95% since the housing bust. And yet, some Americans are still being left behind. The gap between white and black ownership is wider now than it was in 1960. In 1977, President Carter went further with the Community Reinvestment Act, requiring banks to lend to qualified borrowers in low-income communities in cities where they had branches. But these laws have not solved the problem. After the 2008 recession, banks tightened their lending standards. Ten years later, while lending has returned for many Americans, Reveal's analysis shows what looks like modern-day redlining is showing up across the country. We have places like Washington, D.C., Tulsa, Oklahoma, Santa Fe, New Mexico. These are the places where they are more likely to be denied because of who they are. The Fair Housing Act of 1968 put an official end to redlining. However, local jurisdictions didn't necessarily let that federal banning get in the way. There were a lot of local covenants that were put in where if a developer is putting in a new development, they can write into that development that African-American communities, immigrant communities are not allowed to purchase homes in this new development. And that's what we have seen in the past and what we still in many ways see locked in today. And so it has a lot of implications for how we move forward. The block been hot, my folks been got The lines been drawn, they clear as day It ain't ink blocks True. Take a pit stop just to make a quick jot You can kick rocks like Kid Rock They say we too big a risk, it could flop Word. Write us Word. off, dead it with red instead of white chalk Black ball, you can't cross, no reward No open door policy, shut them down, call it off High risk, fine print, dotted line script Might get some black or brown in their whiteness God forbid Plus how they define it Poor whites get lumped up and lined in It gets as good as mine is It ain't race bait, it's race based Base. It ain't my job to play safe or placate okay? nope. It's the nation's way, say it straight 
even with the same pay, can't get the same place. New data from the federal government show 2018 was the fourth hottest year since scientists began keeping records in 1880. According to NASA and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, temperatures last year were more than 1.4 degrees above the 20th century average. The report found the Earth has been warming for decades and the hottest 20 years have all happened since the mid-1990s. We recently conducted a study that attempted to examine across the country how historic planning policies that were promoted by the federal government affects our current day exposure to climate-induced hazards, specifically urban heat. We looked at 108 different cities. We wanted to get a really statistically robust sample, as we do in research, and our findings were very unequivocally showing that the policies that the federal government enacted in the 1930s, namely redlining, those policies that went in place almost 100 years ago were consistently linking those areas that are considered hazardous, where there are no services provided, where there is little tree canopy, parks, healthcare services, education, to the hottest places today that people are experiencing in those neighborhoods. We studied 108 cities and 93% or 101 of those cities had that same pattern across the board. On average, when we look at 108 cities, we were able to identify that the difference between the redlined areas and the, and the non-redlined areas was on average about five degrees Fahrenheit difference or 2.6 degrees Celsius. And that's across all 108, though that varies a great deal from city to city. If you look at Jacksonville, Florida, the difference is about five and a half degrees Celsius or about nine degrees Fahrenheit difference. Portland, Oregon, that difference is about seven degrees uh, Celsius or about 12 and a half degrees Fahrenheit. And so it does vary depending on which city you are. And that has a lot to do with the local development processes and the way that certain areas were designated based on the local planning commission that was there, based on local politics that were going on. And so there's a lot of those details that we don't get into in the paper, but we were able to see about a um, five degree on average Fahrenheit difference across the country with the, between these red line areas and these non-red line areas. The temperature in New York is getting much hotter. When I walk outside in the heat, I have difficulty breathing sometimes and my chest feels like it's like a little compressed. If the humidity is too high, I stay inside. I believe it's due to the environment also, not only the humidity, because when I'm inside, I don't have a breathing problem. What I can remember about 1995 is that my husband passed in his uh, apartment. He was on the couch and sitting up, and his uh, room was extremely hot when I arrived there. And the only thing was going was a ceiling fan. That July in Chicago, the heat index reached 120 degrees for four straight days. Thousands of residents lost power, roads buckled, and more than 700 people, mostly the elderly and ill, died due to heat-related causes. 
Heat is a, one of those insidious kind of natural hazards where we all have some experience being in a really hot place. And when we go into a park, we know it's cooler. When we go into a parking lot, we know that it's hotter and we actually can feel that difference on our skin. And that's really what it comes down to is how our bodies are able to cope with that particular heat that we're feeling on our skin. Generally, we sweat and that sweat is hit by the air. That air evaporates the sweat and that provides the cooling. Though in areas where it's humid and hot, what we see from the research point of view is this phenomenon called wet bulb temperatures. And that is when we're actually not seeing evaporation happen from the skin and our bodies are actually not able to cool down. And we evolutionarily, ideally, we're in around the 70 degree Fahrenheit. That's where our species did really well. We moved across the planet. We moved out of Africa. We were able to really cover the entire planet around that 70 degree. Though now if we're starting to hit that 37 Celsius or even getting up that 98.6 degree Fahrenheit level and our bodies are not able to cool off from the ambient environment, our body goes into respiratory shock or even levels of heat stress that we're not able to cope with. As global temperatures continue to rise, experts say there's growing evidence that humans will face catastrophic heat waves and that parts of our planet will become uninhabitable unless we make drastic changes. And so those that have pre-existing health conditions, older adults, those that are, aren't able to find cooling resources, whether it be air conditioning or whether it be a cooling center in your local neighborhood, those are the folks we've seen systematically have a lot of excess mortality and morbidity, that's disease and death, beyond what we would regularly see when these heat waves come through. In many ways, if the planet is getting warmer and we're seeing more frequent, more intense, and longer duration heat waves, then in many ways we are encountering uh, what I would call a public health crisis that's very preventable. This is one of the most preventable natural hazards that we could encounter, and yet we are still seeing people die unnecessarily across the country. Studies across the country, all around, all around. caught on front streets of the upteen. All around, all around. It's more than just a little musty, you're uncomfy. Keep getting too much heat. Sounding like a Trump speech, denying climate. No canopies or brush trees inside and rides. Denying bias why they flying bias I hide behind the same tight lies Well, my time's up A few degrees Fahrenheit up You might bust Psst. That's what pressure does Makes the pipes bust That's why there's hell up in Harlem That's why we starving That's why they spit the same jargon That's why we marching That's why the Bronx was burning It's not arson That's why they carpet bagging And why they carbon Overheating And the heat in the apartment Is like a swamp And they don't even care It's the biggest market is it possible that pollution could actually be a civil rights issue? Now, right now in the United States, if you're black or Asian or Latino, the air that you breathe could be more polluted than if you happen to be white. Now, what about if you're white and from a poor community? Well, the likelihood of being exposed to industrial pollution is higher as well. And that's because it's generally cheaper and easier to build coal and petroleum facilities, sewage fields, even industrial pig farms in low-income communities. Property prices are lower and people have fewer resources to fight back. Activists call it environmental racism. 
We run a project called the Climate Safe Neighborhoods Partnership and in five of our trusts across the country, we've overlaid the redlining maps with heat maps that show the relative temperature uh, in, in cities as of 2016, the tree canopy and then impervious pavement, which think roads, rooftops, driveways, parking lots, that sort of thing. And we use that as a proxy for flooding. And if you'd asked me if there had been a relationship between race-based housing segregation and the redlining maps and vulnerability to extreme heat and wet, I probably would have said yes. It's one of those things that's disappointing, but not surprising, but I never would have thought it would have been an as extreme connection. So something to, to keep in mind and, and to know is that these maps were created by cities. So you had neighborhoods the same way you do today, where you could cross from one side of the street and be in a red-lined neighborhood and go to the other side of the street and be in a yellow or blue or green-lined neighborhood. And we see really similar differences in tree canopy, in temperature, in impermeable pavement, uh, even across the street and even, even between really similar neighborhood lines. Some neighborhoods can be up to 16 degrees hotter than other neighborhoods within the same city. What that practically means, that is a portion of the city that's turning on their air conditioning and running a high bill. That's a portion of the city where if you have a medical condition that is triggered by heat, so I'm thinking asthma, I'm thinking kidney issues, heart issues, those are folks who are probably a little bit closer to ending up in the hospital than folks on the other side of town. So we see this really long legacy that has financial implications, social implications, those cultural implications related to the day-to-day -day lives of people living in these neighborhoods. So that the effects are long lasting. A new United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. More than 100 scientists from across the globe put together the findings, the most extensive look to date at the effects of climate change on the environment. From the Earth's tallest peaks to the ocean floor, scientists warn no part of the world will be spared from the climate crisis. The consequences for nature and humanity are sweeping and severe. The United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released the unprecedented report, concluding that the planet can't keep up with global warming. The oceans, which act as a sponge for CO2 emissions, are at capacity, threatening to swallow up islands and coastal cities. The first thing that's important to note is the climate crisis is coming for everyone, rich, poor, black, white, doesn't matter. The climate crisis is coming for all of us just on different timescales. And these folks who have been historically vulnerable people, we're talking immigrants, we're talking people of color, we're talking extremely low income people. These folks are on the front lines and, and historically always have been. A lot of the neighborhoods that people of color were pushed into through municipal ordinances, or just through a de facto segregation, right? Folks not wanting people of color to be in their neighborhood or not wanting low income people to be in their neighborhood. They were intentionally pushed towards places that were prone to flooding and extreme heat anyway, and, and, and have been over a really long time, even in the pre-industrial periods. The difference now is that those folks have been kept in those spaces. So it's, it's, the other thing that's really frustrating about this is that it's not just up to these communities that are suffering most in the climate crisis to find the mitigation measures. It's also up to them to convince people that there's a problem and that what happened in the 1930s is still relevant today. And this is really a conversation about structural racism. I've had conversations with folks in Richmond, California and Richmond, Virginia and Pawtucket, Rhode Island, where people have said, well, I don't really believe there's a connection. And looking at that data, uh, being able to layer the map yourself, put down the red line of the map, put down the heat, put down the flooding, uh, building that argument with that data in front of their eyes has started to change them to minds. And it stinks that the onus on, of that is on people who are suffering the most, but power is not given. There, there's a, an element of, of having to do that work as unfair as it is. And one of the things that's nice about this process too is we're pulling in a, a broad array of allies to help not just I help the community identify and prioritize their mitigation measures. 
but help to do that legwork of convincing folks that, yeah, this is a problem and it needs to be rectified. This is a legal issue. This is a cultural issue that does precede what's happening today. But, you know, there's 50, 60, 70, 80, 100, 250 years of, of, of racial precedent that this led to, to where we are. Red line, red flag, red dawn. Red. Propaganda, read along, read along. Read along. Read along. Same old song, a long opera. Red line, mercury. Check the thermometer. Too hot. Too Heat hot. islands, we being cooked alive in. Yep. Yep. Need a reprieve before we fry. Uh-huh. Boundaries uh-huh. made of fire. Climate change may be the only thing in this world that's colorblind, but <laughs> the system isn't and never was. Never so was. basically, for every issue that there ever was, there's racism at play. Cabeticus. As much as some folks wanna play deaf and dumb. Wet bowls don't dry, you left them hung Freedom never run, you let it flood Whole structure get undone We gotta collectively level up Well there it is everyone, thank you for listening Redlining, climate change, mass incarceration How coronavirus disproportionately affects African Americans and low income communities These are just some of the many social justice issues we cover in our quest to shine a light, inspire, and spark change through weaponizing independent journalism and original hip-hop. We ask that if you too are passionate about such things and dig what we're doing, please make sure you're subscribed to our podcast. We would love if you took a moment to rate and review us and to share us on your social media platforms. And as I mentioned earlier, you can find all of our episodes along with accompanying stories, guest and artist bios, and much more at usnewsbeat.com. We want to give a special shout out to our parent company, Inbound Marketing, Sales Enablement, and Client Retention HubSpot partner agency, Mori Creative Studios, who make what we do possible. Please check them out at moricreative.com and spread the love. And once again, thank you for listening. My name is Manny Faces. On behalf of the Newsbeat and Mori Creative Studios teams, we wish you health and perseverance during these trying times and long afterward. Until next time, one love. Peace.